As part of Polis Analysis's campaign against fake news, we've invited experts from the fields of journalism, academia and politics alongside our own head of research to discuss in depth the problem the world is facing with fake news. A fundamental part of this campaign has been not just to highlight the existence of the problem, but to play an important role in providing the solutions to it. This discussion provides a platform for our experts to begin to do just that. Claire Rucastle Brown is an investigative journalist whose work has helped to expose corruption at the heart of governments and multinational media organisations. Professor Nicholas O'Shaughnessy is Professor Emeritus of Communications at Queen Mary University London and Visiting Professor in the, in the Centre for Strategic Communications at King's College London. Melissa Fairfall is a legal expert and parliamentary aide to senior member of the Scottish National Party in Westminster. They're joined by Polis Analysis's head of research and resident fake news expert, Jeremy Elizier-Zmudzinski, who has led the way in this establishing Polis Analysis as a force for highlighting the dangers of fake news. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for taking the time to participate in this discussion. Okay, hello, uh, I'm Cameron Gillies. Uh, I'm one of the external engagement leads for Polis Analysis. And today we're hosting a panel discussion uh, with a focus on fake news between some relevant experts on the issue. Uh, we're gonna jump straight into things uh, here as we're waiting on our final panelists. Uh, so my first question um, to all panelists is, how would you define fake news? Uh, and if we could kick things off with Nicholas, well, that is the um, <laughs> the million uh, dollar question. I think um, fake news is a complex entity. It is clearly disinformation. Uh, but the key feature of it, I think, is the willingness of the disinformed uh, to believe. In other words, I see it really as a partnership. I, I don't see it as a kind of hypodermic stimulus response model. Uh, people believe fake news because they have a wish to believe it. I see it as an enormous historical force. I mean, we can uh, go back in time, we can go back, you know, to the Trojan War. It's always been there, and it's always been uh, a major mechanism in politics and international uh, affairs, and uh, one can go right through history illustrating this. Today, it's uh, reached, I think, uh, a new level of, of vehemence uh, because of social media, the internet, the cyber world, have turned it into uh, more than just a toxic force or, or instrument. It's actually become an entire parallel reality where everything is believed and nothing is believed. Uh, it's led to uh, pervasive cynicism, of course, but also uh, astonishing credulity. And it is a threat to democracy, as we're seeing with Stop the Steal. The notion that a majority of 7 million was a lost election uh, requires some nerve to perpetuate. But uh, most Republicans, 70% of Republicans, believe it. So we're talking about uh, not merely a historical force, but one of the great structures in history, the great engineering mechanisms of history and consciousness, which has today just exploded in our faces. It's always been there, but today is uh, contaminating everything. It's a kind of toxic pollution of human consciousness. If you take, for example, WhatsApp, a quarter of a billion people have WhatsApp in India. And uh, a year, uh, about a year ago, there are a whole number of cases of people being murdered in villages, just visitors, because the rumor goes out on WhatsApp that they've arrived from the towns to kidnap children, whereas they were just tourists from other regions of India or the same region going out into the country. And there have been a number of beatings up and even murders because of that. So that's an example of fake news at the local level. At the global level, it's uh, something else. It's a constant war being fought by certain countries, by certain political parties, uh, by uh, antagonists in this debate or, or that debate. There seems to be no end to it. And the real focus should be how can we best guard people from fake news? Now, one of the guardians used to be the journalistic profession. But 
journalistic numbers have been slashed in certain America by thousands and thousands. In other words, there is no, I mean, they say journalism is the first edition of history, but that first edition of history is now only in a tentative form because the profession has been um, emasculated, for want of a better word. Uh, so I think we're, we're actually peering over the abyss. Uh, the only solace I think uh, we can have is that to a degree, we've been there before in history. And in the 1930s, the uh, Propaganda Analysis Organization was founded in the US to do precisely this thing, to educate children and college students in fake news and propaganda. And it's, you know, 10 points of propaganda analysis, for example. Very, very useful uh, materials. And they were doing this because of domestic threats like the incendiary radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin, who had a huge impact in the 30s and foreign menaces like Hitler, of course, as well as other forces uh, pushing their way into schools, such as American corporations uh, producing corporate propaganda. So we've been there before. We were here 80 years ago. We've in a sense gone back to the future, but it's of course far, far worse now, except we don't have a menace like Hitler who was fake news. I mean, he really was the ultimate fake news merchant. Whether he believed any, any of it isn't, isn't clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll stop you there. I'll, I'll let Claire have a go at, at uh, mm -hmm. reaching a definition of, of fake news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I, I, yes, um, thank you. And uh, I, I sort of have to say, as you've referred to the American situation, I, 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 I personally felt that Trump in some ways was a menace like Hitler using the same mm techniques. Um, really interesting listening to your different definitions. And as a journalist, I, I, I sort of encountered deliberate uh, purchased fake news as a commodity um, with the flowering of social media quite early on. I mean, that, I, I'm saying it sort of around about 2008, I think it started to really flourish. And, and I, I see it that, you know, it, the, there's the wild unsubstantiated rumors that, as you've described, can cause Havoc. Um, I mean, we've seen it with QAnon and obviously with, with the Indian examples that you brought up. And then there's this more structured, deliberate uh, disinformation, uh, propaganda that, that, you know, we, we've seen, um, you know, as, as, as you've described uh, you know, in the tradition of, of Hitler and all the rest. And, and, and that's what I think we've seen uh, becoming very dangerous um, um, in recent years. And I, I first came across this, you know, um, companies setting out to merchandise uh, social media propaganda, um, uh, you know, for a great deal of money uh, to very powerful and wealthy people. Um, and um, it came as a surprise to me. I mean, it shouldn't have done. It seemed preposterous to begin with. Um, I, was a, I was looking to highlight a cause as a journalist and discovered this wonderful thing, having recently retired from TV, um, which was this, you know, this ability to set up a website and just write uh, articles that appeal to a specific interest group, namely the uh, people of uh, Malaysia, in my case, who were facing massive corruption, environmental problems, um, and to start exposing issues and, and, and gaining traction. It, at first, when I became the butt of fake news attacks, um, I was amazed because what I discovered is that, you know, there were British American based companies who had seen the opportunity to manipulate social media and were marketing for millions of dollars um, social media disinformation campaigns. Um, and these were, of course, actually the uh, I was the victim of, of one of these campaigns after I started annoying rich and powerful people in Malaysia back from about 2010. Um, there were $15 million contracts being taken out to sort of do me over on social media. Um, and um, the people running that were fascinatingly to reemerge as key players in America in 2016, namely uh, Paul Manafort and his circle of related bloggers. Um, I was able to ex expose uh, uh, the ones who were attacking me, an ally of Paul Manafort called uh, Alan Friedman, who ran a company called F Beaten at that time as an independent um, 
broadcaster, filmmaker, PR company, but also, yes, both together. And the PR company was was selling uh, this product to some of the reviled autocratic uh, regimes. Um, and um, so I'm take that off. Um, and uh, sort of going for me on uh, social media. Um, and so I, 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 as a journalist, experienced what many journalists experience, which is being a target of that kind of uh, fake news media. Um, you know, extremely expensive, extremely professional. Sorry, <laughs> I need to turn off my... Um, uh, so, so on the other hand, as a journalist, I've been accused of being a purveyor of fake news. Um, you know, um, the, the laws were passed in Malaysia, one of the first countries uh, to do so against fake news, um, purely because of the scandal, uh, the 1MDB scandal, um, which was the highest level of corruption, the prime ministerial corruption that I, that I exposed in the course of my investigations in Malaysia. And they brought in laws um, and then, you know, sort of charged me under them and sought to extradite me to face sort of ghastly 20-year potential sentences for having allegedly told, told an untruth. Um, and so um, as a result, um, you know, um, I, I see fake news and, and the problem of fake news from, from both those perspectives. Um, yeah. And just to finish, really, um, I, I think, you know, with a, with a perhaps a, a sort of an analogy of our times, um, you know, I, I see it, you know, we talk about viruses a great deal um, and, and fake news being viraled and all the rest. Um, and having seen this from both sides and, and taking on board, uh, you know, um, your, your earlier comment about um, uh, fake news being something that, uh, you know, has always been with us, rumour and rumour mongering and propaganda. Um, I, I think, uh, and it's taken on this new sort of persona through social media, that the only way that as societies we can handle this without becoming oppressive in the way that the fake news lawmakers would would, would be only too happy to, to do um, is, is to learn about it, to inoculate ourselves by experiencing and learning to recognize fake news. Mm. Um, and that to me is the solution. Populations have to recognize fake news and understand it. Um, although on the other hand, you know, you will always have people who, who will believe what they want to believe um, when it's provided for them. So that's an ongoing battle, I think, but better than fake news. Fake news, the Ladybird book of fake news and begin them early in... <laughs> And I, I hope we. What a good idea! <laughs> I hope we can come on to uh, the, the topic of how we'll actually tackle fake news later on. Uh, but yeah, we're we're getting some uh, quite varied definitions of fake news here, so that's really good. Um, I think moving on to the next point, Lee. Um, I wonder, particularly in someone uh, of someone working in Parliament or for members of Parliament, uh, what I'm interested to know is. Um, how, do, how does fake news affect your work life? Yeah, um, I, yeah, I could, yeah, no, I can, I completely agree. I think when, like, what you guys have been saying about it, it's, um, it's always, it's definitely always something that's been around, but I think, like, when your whole job is to, you know, allow democracy and things, and people are just putting out, you know, some, like, sometimes, like you say, it's just rumours, Sometimes it's just like, you know, harmless misinformation or people's opinions, but it's when they share information that's just downright wrong and even harmful, um, you know, completely like some, you know, I think previous referendums, elections have all been harmed by it. But even the past year that I've like particularly worked for the MP that I currently work for, um, we get a lot of information, like a lot of people writing in about various um, conspiracies, shall we say, saying that, you know, co coronavirus doesn't exist, saying the government are against us, saying that they're going to, you know, um, in, you know, inject like various kind of tracking devices or things like that on you um things that are just sometimes crazy but the the idea that people will believe what they want to believe and you know they look for this sort of sensationalist headline and I think a lot of people almost want to hear that there's something more because obviously like coronavirus and following the rules and it just being a virus you know that 
like emerged from China is kind of almost boring to them. They kind of want to think that there's actually something more. And then they tell their friends or they perhaps share it on social media and things. And then the next thing, there's a lack of trust in, in the government. So when they do put out rules and regulations and really just guidelines, guidance to protect each other, to protect our most vulnerable people, to protect the NHS. And people then think that, oh, there, there must be something more. And, oh, how can they how can they have a right to to make these rules and everything? They think that there's something else. They think that there's this bigger picture of people that are out to get them. And um, it can be it can be extremely dangerous. I mean, uh, luckily, in this country, we've had a great uptake in people, you know, even younger people taking the vaccines and everything like our statistics are so good. But all it takes is for some misinformation to do with something that's quite maybe quite important to you, quite sensitive to you, such as, you know, there are people saying that it like causes autism and, you know, your children or even like stops fertility in general. And if that if you're that's something that you're like, you know, if you're maybe at a, like in my age, like a lot of my friends are at the age where they're wanting to conceive and things. Um, and yeah, so again, a dangerous information that isn't really backed up by anything. And I think when it undermines like the Scottish government or the UK government and their ability to keep people safe. Yeah, I think it's, I think I've definitely noticed how sensationalized and harmful it can it can be. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. I, I'd actually be uh, interested to hear your, your take on that, Jeremy, as someone working in a, a very different work environment from, from Parliament. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Cameron. And thanks so much to everyone for being here. Um, I'm, I don't know whether Cameron introduced me at the top. I'm sure he did. Uh, but it's just an honor to have everyone here at, um, discussing at the summit at Polis. I'm sorry I'm late. My day job sort of had a meeting it dragged on. Um, and, and speaking of that, so with the work that I do outside of Polis, I mean, fake news really doesn't affect my day to day. Right. But at Polis, it gives it, you know, the, the sort of the interesting thing about fake news, misinformation, disinformation, whatever, however you want to call it um, or however you want to parse out those definitions um, is that it gives us something to talk about. I mean, it's a, it's a source of content generation for us. So ironically, you know, it's a big part of it's in some sense, it's a big part of our business. The fact that its existence means that we have a place in the media landscape and that we're able to differentiate ourselves from a lot of the media companies. So in some way it's, you know, we have a sort of a symbiotic relationship with it. Um, but, you know, in terms of the the way I think about it. So yeah, I mean, that's how it affects my work life at Polis. Um, is it, it's something that, that, you know, that I have to write about. And it's also something that I discuss a lot with my friends and colleagues at Polis and et cetera. I recently did a podcast about fake news. We recently launched a Polis podcast and one of my friends listened to it and he responded in text. He said, you know, I listened to your podcast, but, you know, I think you're missing the point here. I think a lot of times people just, they don't even want to consume real media. I think a lot of people are just looking for media that's entertaining. And he mm -hmm. said that, you know, one of the interesting comments there, and, and it's, an, it's, it's a good point that he makes is, Sometimes people aren't prioritizing uh, truth over falsity. They might just prioritizing what's entertaining over what's boring. Yes. And in an economy where that's the case, in an information economy where uh, sort of, I guess, in an attention economy where people may be, may be prioritizing being entertained rather than being informed, that sets up a lot of issues with fake news. And so that's actually one of the things that lately I've been thinking about in trying to sort of see how polls could combat that or what kind of research can go into that because I think that's actually one of the, the more fundamental problems. Um, but anyway, to answer your question directly, how it affects me in my work life at Polis, it's just something that we can write about and talk about. Um, and it's interesting to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, th I think we've all touched on uh, why fake news is, has become the issue it is today. Uh, Nicholas, you, you talked about it, uh, you know, pr pervading societies throughout history since, since the Trojan Wars. I, I wondered if, if you'd be able to expand on exactly why you think uh, fake news has, has become the issue it is today. Thank you, thank you very much. And of, of course, I think you, the point you, you just made about entertainment is very fundamental. Uh, in writing two books on Nazi propaganda, 
Uh, one of the things I really concluded is that Nazi Germans are actually bought by Nazi Germany, but it was the ability of the regime to entertain them, and fake news was part of that, the panels at circuses of the Roman emperors, which propelled the regime uh, along. Uh, I just want to make a, another point that about the US at this time, where we've got about 60% vaccination. Uh, there is this performance gap between that and attaining herd immunity. And if that performance gap is not closed, we face further mutations, of course, of the virus. We face overwhelming the, the hospitals. And this is obviously partly a task of persuasion. But the victim is very much the victim of fake news. I mean, Tucker Carlson went on the rampage about vaccination only the other day, and it's truly terrifying that the elusive goal of herd immunity, which we may have attained in Britain, is not happening in America because primarily of disinformation, including for historic reasons like the Tuskegee experiment with the black communities. But it's not getting beyond 60% and the American government is stalling and it is really facing the igneous rock of fake news and doesn't how to deal with it, doesn't know how to uh, pull more people in. But if you look at fake news as historic force, which is, I, I think, the pith of your question, um, one cannot actually over-exaggerate. We could go to Joshua at the Battle of Jericho in the Bible. We could go to the Trojan War, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. Uh, we could go right through the Roman Emperor. I mean, after all, the strapline of uh, ancient Rome, Sonatus Populusque Romanus, was itself fake news, as if Rome were actually run by the people in the Senate. They're run by the emperor from, from Augustine on. And so um, uh, you could go to um, things like the Titus Oates conspiracy. Uh, you could go to the myth of the Tony Pandy massacre. You can go right through and see it as uh, playing a, a critical role. For example, in the American Revolution, it was terribly important to portray George III as a tyrant. Now, actually, um, uh, Jefferson and John Adams did actually meet him after the revolution. And Jefferson liked John Adams a lot, but turned his back on um, uh, Jefferson. And the reason was that Jefferson had called him a tyrant and it was essential to convince Americans that they're victims of tyranny. But it wasn't quite tyranny. The only tax imposed in the end was the tax on tea but you had to build it up into a rapacious, monolithic, autocratic, brutal empire when it was actually much less than that. So, so you can say that fake news has played a huge role in the causation of wars uh, right throughout history. I'm the uh, example I gave you last time of the German invasion of Poland, the September the 1st, 1939, actually began with a fake news event where they dragged these corpses out, put them in um, German army uniforms, uh, and they um, announced that there'd been a Polish, a Polish attack on a, a German radio station uh, at the border, the station at Gleichwitz, and that German soldiers had been killed. And Hitler then goes to the Reichstag and says, we will reply bomb for bomb, and then they send, then they invade. So you have these manufactured fabrications uh, running throughout, but we've reached a point of cognitive exhaustion where everything, the entire cognitive landscape seems to be fraudulent, where we believe nothing that academics or scientists tell us, nothing that the news, uh, and behind it all is really, I think, the notion of conspirators and conspiracy theorists. Uh, the notion that there are certain people, Davos, George uh, Conference, George Soros, etc., who are kind of mysterious manipulators uh, behind the scenes, and that there is an agenda behind all this fake news. It is a power play by certain powerful entities and individuals uh, within the world. And so fake news often resolves into a conspiracy theorizing, whereas, of course, it's much bigger and more per per pervasive than that, and all countries do it. You have the troll farms of Russia, it's hardly a monopoly of Cambridge Analytica or anything else. And Russia has always done that. It's yeah. done that from the early Bolshevik days. And I, I, I feel like we're, we're all um, 
somewhat singing from the same hymn sheet here um, mm. over our over our definitions and, and as as to why we, we we think this issue has has come about. But um, I wondered if anybody on the panel uh, thought thought that perhaps um, perhaps these issues have come from somewhere uh, somewhere different. Do do we think that this issue of fake news today is, is different in any way? Uh, from issues, the, the fake news issues that we had in the past. Uh, you know, Nicholas has given us some good examples there uh, of where fake news has changed the course of history in the past. Uh, and, and is the fake news we're seeing today any different from that? Uh, Claire? Yeah, well, it was, it was really interesting, <laughs> wonderfully interesting listening to Nicholas's sort of historical context. And, and so sort of trying to sort of keep with that theme, what, what, what is it about us today um, and the fake news that we're seeing being imbibed and, and, and sort of um, welcomed by so many people? And, and I wonder um, if you might agree that, I, that there's been a sort of period of actual of complacency. Um, although people have always said, oh, you can't trust what is in the newspapers. By and large, um, you know, for, for several decades, one has in the West been able to trust that the newspapers, which have, have been, you know, a sort of fairly controlled, almost gentlemanly game uh, for several years, um, were not blatantly going about telling complete, utter lies. Uh, they would, they, you know, they had different perspectives and opinions. Uh, and I think that there has been that complacency. And at the same time, a growing uh, sort of irresponsibility amongst us in the media. Um, and, you know, and I would start pointing fingers. For example, I've worked for the Murdoch, um, you know, um, Titan. And, um, you know, I think it's a very, there's a very irresponsible attitude driving uh, some of that uh, corner of the middle, very large chunk of the media, which is, oh, you know, this is all about, you know, getting eyes on pages or viewers or making money out of advertising. And, and there's been a slippage that the awful slippage of of, 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 you know, dumbing down and then turning news into entertainment um, and to hell with balance, to hell with values, to hell with objectivity, to hell with paying experienced journalists when you can get, you know, obedient, um, cheap uh, college students to do the work, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've allowed ourselves to degenerate. We've allowed our media to degenerate. And, and maybe the consumers haven't quite woken up to the, the level of that. And have sort of a, 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 a more use, you know, we're, we're still quite used to believing, by and large, what we read. And I think a lot of people have been taken in by that. They're not yet aware of just how much, you know, evil deception humans are, <laughs> certain humans are capable of, um, you know, when the rules start to fall away, the rules of the game in the media have started to fall away. And of course, there's the internet that has played its part in that. And um you know, I think also that you have to look at just the, 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 the levels of dissatisfaction uh, and anger um, in, in both Europe and America, um, but particularly within sort of blue collar um, sections of the community that have been squeezed by um, you know, globalization and, uh, you know, uh, lashbacks against um, social reform, um, who have been economically squeezed in, in many areas and who are angry and who are looking at ways and unwilling to believe just about anything um, against the establishment as they see it, who they are now seeing as oppressors. Um, so that combination, I think, um, is what gives the, the particular flavor that we have to our fake news today, uh, combined with, with social media. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, again, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing uh, lots of sort of similar views as, as to uh, what fake news is. And I, I'd like to move the conversation on to uh, how, how we actually solve that issue. Uh, uh, Lee, you, you, uh, you work for a member of uh, the opposition in Parliament. Um, and I, I wondered, to what extent is the onus on the opposition to hold the government to account for solving these issues? Yeah, I think it's definitely, um, yeah, definitely, there's definitely an onus on the opposition to do that. I mean, it's very easy, I think, to, for, like, especially if the media is on your, is maybe a bit more on your side, it's maybe very easy to kind of be a bit complacent and think, well, you know, it's, this maybe isn't as harmful and everything like that. And, you know, there's certain stories that kind of get 
bypassed and you know people aren't really holding other people to account and um yeah i think it's definitely true that um if we want to see a change then we are going to have to maybe be a lot more um forceful in making sure that they there is legislation and there is um there is um you know, moves put into place. Um, I know a lot of them are saying just now about, um, you know, social media having, like, being verified and, you know, wanting your ID, you know, attached to it and everything so people can know where that information's coming from and obviously can be held to account if the information's harmful and everything. So I think it'll be interesting to see how things progress and whether, um, you know, these laws do get passed. Obviously, there's many stages of that, so... Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, that's great. And and Jeremy, do you think that there's any part for uh, sort of startup organisations such as Polis Analysis to, to begin tackling this issue from a different angle, perhaps than the, the, the traditional route? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I think one of the reasons a startup like Polis is well positioned to do that is because it's not, we're not a profit generating institution um and you know we don't we don't make money on the news that we or you know our political analysis and to, to claire's point about why it's such a big problem and i know that i don't want to belabor the point because i don't want to repeat anything anyone said but i think one of the things that she mentioned that was really that's really important to harp on in this case is that when when profit models for media companies are based on getting clicks of course media will become more sensationalized or at least more eye-catching and this especially becomes a problem when the media landscape balloons as it has so I, I i can't speak to britain's numbers very well but i know that in the united states in the middle of the 20th century there were a handful of media institutions both on tv and on the radio and in print uh now there are more than anyone could possibly count. And I think when the competition for attention becomes so uh, fierce, that is when you get the kind of Murdochian models of business that she was mentioning. And so to tie that into what a startup like Pulse can do, the nice thing is for us that we're, we're not in a profit generating model. So we don't, we, we're not beholden to getting clicks or making you know sensationalized stories. Of course, we want as many people as possible to read our analysis, but we're not solely motivated by that. We're much more motivated by making sure that our analysis is accurate than it's clickbait material, for example. So I think that's one thing. The other approach that a, a you know startups like Polis um, can take advantage of is that in our you know, in our case, we're entirely composed of under thirties, and definitely the kind of media people consume uh, in the Gen Z generation or Gen Xers is different than the kind of media people that millennials consume and older generations of millennials consume. And so we, because of our composition, are able to talk, I guess, more directly maybe to that audience and to better understand also what it's like to grow up in a world where most of the news our peers are consuming comes from Twitter. I mean, that's just the case for me and for a lot of my, a lot of my peers, a lot of my friends. Uh, and there are wild statistics out there that to show exactly how much news people get from social media, um, at least from younger generations. And so for those two reasons, you know, we can kind of tap into a, a different way of speaking about fake news and talking about fake news more directly to people who encounter similar problems as us because we, we come from that generation. Um, but I do think like fundamentally, the most important thing is if media companies aren't tied to the profit generating model that most media is now, they're, they're better positioned to combat fake news. Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah, that, that, yeah that, that's a really interesting point. And Claire, sort of piggybacking off of that, um, you've proven through your career as an investigative journalist that, that journalism is an effective tool to fighting fake news. Is there anything more that journalists could be doing to fight fake news? Well, I think there's an awful lot shortage of, of journalists doing uh, the heavy work, the heavy lifting work that's, you know, our vital function really, um, exposing um, abuses of power and wealth. Um, and um, that as, uh, you know, as Nicholas pointed out, there are not enough of us left. 
doing that work. And in fact, the irony was that in order to continue to do what I thought was useful journalism, as opposed to um, useless journalism, I had to retire um, and take on a subject that I thought deeply needed doing. And, and I was fortunate to be able to do that and to chase the story that I wanted to do. Uh, most uh, newsroom journalists and you know, magazine journalists don't have that opportunity to de dedicate huge amounts of time um, to go into stories that are you know, not, not on the, the main radar. They're all chasing the same high profile stories while terribly important things are going on around the world that are not being reported on. Um, and, you know, so, um, yes, I, I think we're waking up to this. Um, and, and I do think that the best way to counter a lousy, lying, deceptive news story is with solid fact-based convincing rebuttals by proper journalists. Um, you know, I, I worry about the legislative route because I've seen how you know, the powerful abuse it, um, you know, as a victim of ongoing raft of uh, continuing defamation cases and libel suits, for example, you know, all using laws of privacy and data protection and you name it that were designed to protect uh, the ordinary member of the public from abuses, but become weapons, more weapons in the hands of the super powerful. So legislation, I, I, I fear legislation in most cases, although obviously there are certain areas where obviously you know, where, where we have to counter, um, you know, um, things that are said that could cause immediate harm to certain people. Obviously, there, there has to be a distinction. But um, I, I think actually, um, it's education rather than legislation and more journalism. I think we, we need to subsidize uh, somehow through our society, we need to get back to subsidizing um, objective public interest journalism. So I think a, a double-pronged approach, really, a kind of journalistic or online thrust to expose fake news all over the world through various various forms, online magazines and so forth. But the other is developing educational materials for essentially adolescents to actually teach them how to recognize fake news, which is not actually easy because it would involve confronting the fact that fake news can come from the left as well as the right. Although at the moment in the Trump post-Trump era, uh, the right has been the bigger issue, but it would have to be politically non-partisan, but it could develop all kinds of vigorous lucid materials. How to identify fake news? What are the stigmata of fake news? How to unpick rhetoric? How to look at assertion? How to question evidence? All, all of those things. And the Propaganda Analysis Organization, you see, had these 10 points of propaganda analysis, like name calling, like glittering generalization and so forth, which was a kind of very convenient little portmanteau uh, for, for uh, youth to actually uh, become sensitized to all of this. And I, I think the great problem is when your own site is doing it, it's not fake news. If you're politically partisan. So uh, and that is not an insuperable obstacle. We can develop uh, toolkits, we can develop films, we can develop online resources uh, for schools, which would have a, a broader educative function than just preparing them to be citizens. It would also make them much more critically aware, much more reflective. All the good things we want to come from education could actually come uh, from this, from courses of this. And if you go way back in time, uh, not merely to the Greeks and, and Romans, but to more recent times, if you take people like Marx and Freud, what did their education consist of? It consisted of learning about rhetoric. Uh, they did courses on rhetoric at their schools. <laughs> That's why, of course, <laughs> they were so effective as proselytizers themselves. Uh, this is uh, a part of the education system, which has been, you know, disappeared for about 150 years, but it was part of education, of formal education, certainly of the elite, for, you know, several thousand years. So the training on rhetoric is really a training in how to beguile, but also a training on how to recognize those tools and disrupt them. So um, we're in a way going... Um, back to the beginning, ab initio, with this. But the key must be education, must be actually developing uh, methodologies which uh, pupils can really enjoy, which would make them better citizens, but also more discriminating, discerning, reflective adults. 
Yeah, again, a, a really, a really good point there. I, I think that I think that's something we've we've discussed before as well. Um, and I, I found that a really fascinating approach. Um, Lee, I, I I think in Scotland, uh, where uh, Lee and I are joining you all from, uh, there's there's always been one key issue that, that's dominated politics, and it, it's something that uh, as yet fake news hasn't quite permeated. Um, how do you think we can continue that work? Uh, on on uh, ensuring that fake news uh, that, that there are aspects of democracy that fake news can't get at. Uh, well, let me begin, and I won't uh, speak. I'll just speak briefly so that other people can have their say. That for quite a long time, the New York Times and other newspapers ran rather good features called ad watches, which, whenever a politician or party had put out an advertisement, they scrutinised it and they uh, interrogated it for its truthfulness. We need uh, that, but we need it on a much bigger scale and not just focused on political advertising. It needs to be a regular, every week, uh, a big piece on what is the fake news of the week, on is it fake news and, and looking at the evidence and all of those things we should critically do. I think that would help enormously in you know the, um, uh, elite press in the popular press, it, it could be fashion for both both media and television as well. There's no reason why the news shouldn't run it uh, every week. Yeah, uh, Lee, what's your take on on uh, stopping fake news uh, actually permeating the issues that it hasn't yet reached? Yeah, I completely agree with the points that you've actually that you've actually made. I think that th there is no reason why like the news can't report, um, you know, make clear to us a lot more what um, what news stories of contain misinformation and everything like that, and make sure that we are aware and a lot more like political parties and everything are held more accountable in their um in their advertisements and there's fact checkers and everything like that you can see all that is slowly starting to creep into into social media um twitter is one of the main places for the social media parties different mps and everything to share their information and everything um and they are certainly trying to do a lot more um but i think it probably it probably lies in having a bit of ironically coming from someone who lives who works for um for a political party but i think it ironically comes from having a bit more compassion on what other people's points of view are um you know realizing that you can have an opinion but make sure that prior to sh prior to sharing it um you are looking to see that the information is correct is it true is it you know is it factually um correct is it is it is it kind even you know um and really just trying to make sure that you're kind of having sort of a sense of compassion for other people and what their position on things and things are um and i think we all need to be responsible in our sort of position in in, in politics and make sure that we're not um you know using things for our own gain or trying to make um People think things are one way when they're actually another. Um, yeah, that would be my that would be my take on it. Um, just quickly, uh, our, our, my final question uh, to the panel tonight uh, before before we wrap things up. Uh, this hour has gone by very quickly, and I'm I'm very grateful for all the interesting and varied points everybody's been able to make. Um, if there's one thing you think we should do to tackle fake news, and I I know it's su such a omnivorous uh, subject that it, it's almost impossible to pick one but if there was what what would you do to tackle fake news jeremia one thing to tackle fake news uh i'm inclined to say education but i do think this might not be the one single thing i would do for okay so i guess can i answer this in two two parts on the individual level i would do three things and we'll consider that <laughs> one thing if that's possible on the individual level uh i would try to be very careful about reading information from a wide variety of political views, um, points of view. Generally, information that we consume these days is politically, if it's if it's news that could be harmful because it's fake, potentially, it's it's likely, it likely has some sort of political bent. So I would read from a wide range of political um, perspectives. And I would also be very, very careful to share things. Um, I know that I missed the, the, the section when we discussed different uh, definitions of fake news, 
One of the ways I like to distinguish misinformation from fake news, and I was wondering actually what the panelists thought about this, is I consider misinformation to be uh, mis when it, bad or incorrect false information is disseminated unintentionally, not by someone who's doing it to fool others, but by someone who genuinely doesn't know that it's mis that, that it's not true. And I think that actually happens a lot. There are there was a statistic that something like there's something like 20 percent of people had shared a fake story on Facebook over the last year, some, and, and that goes to show that I think a lot of people don't scrutinize the things that they're reading. And not only do they not scrutinize it for themselves, they're quick to share things as well. And I think if I were giving an individual a piece of advice, I would say, be very careful about what you share online um, and, and, and think about it quite a bit. Um, in terms of a solution that we could have from a top-down approach, so something a, a government or some sort of institution could do, uh, I want to discuss, I don't know if this is the single thing I think is, the, is most important, but I do want to discuss technological solutions to the problem, because I know that so far as a panel, we've, we've talked a lot about sort of educational solutions, potential government solutions, and I think there is a decent amount of investment that could go toward solutions. And there's already been some ground made um, in, this in this regard. So the in University of Indiana, for example, has a, a tool they call Botometer, which is actually very accurately able to assess whether a Twitter account is a bot account or a, a real person's account. And this is, it's an AI and it, it t consumes tons of data from all sorts of Twitter accounts. And it is slowly learning how to distinguish between bots and real people because bots have different uh they have different footprints that different digital signals than people they they speak a little bit differently or i mean i guess type a little bit differently uh they there's a sort of anyway there are patterns that humans can't pick up on that ai can't pick up on over massive amounts of aggregated data and i do think that's an interesting sort of solution to, to you know if twitter were able to fund its own or were able to use this to use the bottometer that university of indiana uh, has developed to check their, their bot accounts, that's a good solution on the technology side. And I think there are more things like this because the advent of intelligent AI is truly that, it's the advent. We have not come close to seeing what technology could do uh, on the fake news side. And I think to combat all the potential dystopian uh, results of having intelligent AI feed us information that we want, we need to combat that with some other sort of technology solutions. So that's something that I would hope to see more investment in. And potentially it would be, it'd have to be government investment, have to be subsidized. But um, anyway, yeah, that's sort of it. Nicholas? Yes, I think uh, there is no magic bullet. And I think legislation might, government intervention might do a more harm than good. I, I think to uh, kill the beast, as it were, the wealth, <laughs> um, we have to look at what is the core dynamic. And that is not that people are credulous. Uh, they actually, I come back to this point, that it's a partnership. People are partners in their own self-deceit. And they are because they want to be. If you look at QAnon, for example, QAnon uh, posits that this risk great um, conspiracy of, of pederasts uh, to control government and so forth. But there was a left-wing version of that a few years ago in the United Kingdom during the whole Carl Beach saga, uh, put about by uh, people um, online things on the left, that there's a huge pederastic conspiracy in the Tory party. Now, did these people actually believe it? Do the QAnon people actually believe it? There is, uh, entertainment is part of the reason, but I think it goes deeper. Uh, the real problem is that people want to believe. Uh, it arises them, it, it excites them, and it helps to explain a lot of what has gone wrong in their life as well. Uh, so combating it is no easy thing. But the battle we face in, is in a sense, uh, the battle for our civilization. If you look, for example, at all the disinformation on climate change, if you look at the disinformation on the last uh, US presidential election, if you look at the disinformation on coronavirus, these are truly terrifying. And this is not a, a fight we can shirk. There are, I think, a, a few ways of doing it though. Uh, you actually, you know, the Jesuits used to say, give me a child at seven and he's mine for life. I think we have to begin in the schools and we have to teach kids the how, the why, and the wherefore of why this exists, how, how to, what a threat it is, 
how to actually um, identify it and how to be better and more discerning citizens without actually uh, the feeling that we're somehow injecting them with left-wing propaganda. That's not what we're about. And Lee? Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, education, the longer they learn, they can learn and teach them how to teach um, kids how to properly look at information, analyze it, look at the sources, um, if it's um, something that they can trust. Um, and if not, maybe be a bit more wary. Um, like you were saying, take in a number of sources, um, don't get all your information from 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 one place. Um, and yeah, probably yeah, be careful what you what you share. I think that's all very good points. Completely agree. Great, that's nice and succinct, thank you. Uh, Claire? <laughs> well, um, I think those are all excellent points. I do think this is a, an emergency of, of our age, and I think that people, you know, uh, able people need to stand up and fight on this. Um, I, I would, sort of as, as an optimist, um, uh, say how I, I'm a great believer in the truth, in the power of the truth, as someone who has taken on sort of, um, for my sins, a number of uh, David versus Goliath battles with um, pretty much all that I had on side was that, was that I had the true facts um, compared to um, the power, wealth, um, political um, uh, connections and so forth of many of the people that I've, I've had to expose. Um, and um, I've often usually won. Um, and I put that down to um, a, a dedicated pursuit of the truth, um, which does get through. It's a massive weapon. Um, and it's what must prevail if we're going to keep our way of life. So all of us, we all need to understand how important this is. We all need to do our bit and we all need to fight for the truth. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a, a really lovely place to wrap things up. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to all our panelists tonight for, for joining us. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground here uh, and we've given one another uh, a lot of food for thought as well. Uh, so thank you all very much for that. Uh, this has been uh, Polis Analysis's fake news panel discussion. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good night. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, thank you for having us.